Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hi, hang out with me for just one second. You might have noticed most other podcasts only produce one show a week or maybe one show a month. But right here, we record three free shows every week in order to keep up with our chaotic politics. Actually, make it six shows a week if you include the After Party on Fridays and the Shadow Docket bonus shows on our Patreon page. And since we're not part of cable news or anything like that or any fancy corporation, we rely on your support to keep producing upwards of six shows a week. And the best way to support The Bob Seska Show is to sign up for $5 a month at bobseskashow.com. That's pennies per episode, only $60 per year. And it helps us keep up with the fire hose of news every day. Again, that's bobseskashow.com or patreon.com slash bobseskashow. And now let the cartoons begin. The Bob Seska Show. Bob Seska. Bob. 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 The Bob Seska Show. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, September 6, 2023, and this is the Bob Seska interview on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Bob. Hello, Bob. Hi. Day 959 of the Biden-Harris administration, 424 days until the 24th presidential election. You can find me on threads and Instagram at the Bob Seska, spoutable Bob Seska. That's my handle there. Twitter, Bob Seska underscore go, and our Patreon page is bobseskashow.com. All right, so there's this documentary out now called Americond, streaming on all the platforms, right? And it got me thinking about income inequality and how to overcome the propaganda that convinces so many working Americans to vote against their own economic best interests. We know the propaganda that I'm talking about here, right? So today I spoke with Jillian Hurley, she's the producer of Americond, about those contradictions and a whole lot more. So stick around for this one and make sure to weigh in on our Patreon page, bobseskashow.com. More information, by the way, on Americond can be found at americond.com, link in the description. Okay, here we go. This is me talking with the producer of Americond, Jillian Hurley. More fun, more music, the Bob Seska Show. Let's 
let's start with income inequality because we're talking okay. about uh, Americond, this amazing documentary. I just watched it today. Obviously, the subject matter is extraordinarily stressful, and one of the major issues we face is uh, is covered in the context of this, whether it's uh, Amazon, NAFTA, all points in between, why we are where we are economically. How did you get involved with Americond in the first place? Dave Patterson, who is one of the producers on um, Super Size Me, contacted me. Oh, wow. Actually, talked contacted me through Twitter. Um, now, we've been Twitter friends for a long time talking about history and how we got here. But I think it was all my carping about how come Trump's saying the economy is so great that people that are working two jobs can't pay the rent. I'm pretty sure that's actually why he contacted me. <laughs> and he, you know, he and his childhood best friend have had this idea for the movie for a long time. And then they brought in Sean Claffey, who was Dave's New York City roommate. And uh, somehow I got to be the odd one in, and that's how I got involved. Oh, amazing. Is this your first film? No, I've worked on um, several other documentaries, and, and I worked for ABC and CBS News, and we you know, made those little serial docs and lifestyle docs, so it's not my first, but it was... It was the first one where we were responsible for everything. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. I imagine it's a completely different environment when you're doing an independent documentary versus working for a network. The good news is being a producer doesn't change that much. Right. Um, yeah. You know, producers, I think you have some experience in this, and producers have all the jobs. Right. And, so the, you know, so it was good background to get into it. But this documentary, you know, we started off, or at least my role in it, I cast a lot of the everyday people and a lot of the activists was to show that the you know the working people out there that weren't making it didn't really follow the stereotypes people want you to believe about them yeah so that's kind of where it started but during about an, a year and a half into shooting the pandemic came about and basically we were watching our families fall off cliffs you know, they were working so hard and there was yeah. no longer any way to make those second jobs didn't exist anymore. But I imagine, too, it was a gigantic struggle to produce the film in the context of the pandemic because you're talking about masking and social distancing and trying not to be in too close of quarters with with other people. But you've got to push forward. I'm sure lots of other productions faced this conundrum. How do we do this thing and also kind of keep ourselves safe, keep ourselves free of covid? Right. I actually got the pandemic. I think the first week it was in America shooting in a very difficult location where it was all Disney employees who had lost their electricity and water. Wow. And we didn't know it was here yet. And we didn't know until much later when they tested me that I had it, but that made us all very careful. And um, we did a lot of shooting outside. We wore masks. Yeah. You know, we, we used longer range cameras and some, some interviews we actually did over video. Did you have like a testing regimen that went on with some of your subject matters? Like, like there was this, uh, this woman with her son in the cab of a truck and as your truck driver, it's her second job. And there's a camera operator there in the cab with this kid and his mom. Um, I imagine in situations like that, you want to make sure everyone's tested. So you're not just riding along and, and everyone's getting COVID, right? Right. Now we shot Christina before COVID. Oh, oh, okay, great. We did. We tested and we masked. And you'll see, you know, in the film from Northern California, you see that, you know, the people that we're shooting are wearing masks. Right, right. 
You know, we have this bizarre, contradictory nature in this country, Jillian, that favors aspiration over current status. This is the thing, as I'm watching the documentary, I, I, this is what was rattling around in my head, where, you know, we have this aspirational attitude toward wealth. Like, we worship wealth even when we don't have it. And mm -hmm. that tends to serve as an impediment toward regulating wealth, right? You don't get a lot of support for regulating wealth among people who maybe falsely believe they will eventually be wealthy. In other words, we aspire to be wealthy, therefore we support policies that favor the wealthy, even if those policies are economically regressive and subjugate us, right? Uh, why is that? Why is that happening? Why do we have this contradiction? I think that a lot of the contradiction is because a lot of people, they don't exist unless they're wealthy. Yeah. They they have people working two jobs have actually bought you know the propaganda that think tanks got together to put together mm -hmm. to get lower tax base and they believe that if they were putting in enough hours and working hard enough they could make it i can't tell you bob how many times in looking for subject i would be like in the same neighborhood and talking to people in the same socioeconomic group but the person i was talking to thought they were the only one not making it in the neighborhood and of course they weren't. There were many and many others. It's uh, endemic, I'm sure, to that but neighborhood. Yeah. Two or three doors down, they didn't realize they were all juggling their bills, but they looked out the door and their kids could afford to do Little League and, you know, um, ACT testing. And they, they I just, it was so uncomfortable sometimes to be talking to people that thought they were the only one. That's the thing that I can't get beyond in the debate around income inequality, which is how we overcome that propaganda. Now, the, the documentary covers the rise of think tanks like Cato. Seems like one of the major prongs of all of this is that, you know, emergent propaganda from these institutions. Americans being relentlessly bombarded with nonsense like how progressive taxation kills jobs or that unionization kills workers' rights or how uh, the progressive agenda is the greatest threat to the United States of America. <laughs> rather than historical evidence showing the exact opposite of all of those things. How do we rebuild the middle class while there's this multi-billion dollar far-right propaganda machine influencing the very people who'd benefit from New Deal economic policies? Well, by the time we got done, you know, unions weren't supposed to be a part of this movie at all. Although I have to say myself, I was my family was taken out of poverty by a union and two of the other producers grew up in union families, but it became very clear, not early in the film when we were, you know, we interviewed each one of the experts several times in the almost four and a half years we shot. Mm -hmm. And at first nobody was mentioning unions, but it became clear by the end, the real experts thought that the only way to do that was unions because they're the only people that can afford to or have the power to or can organize to explain to people exactly what you're saying that it you know yeah. that it doesn't it hurts the company you know all boats rise when people make a fair income right right but there is this impediment where you have a great number of working class Americans, uh, what's left of middle class Americans in places like Trump country, for lack of a better term. Uh, this ongoing misapprehension among those people that because um, they're being told that trans people are sharing bathrooms with them. Therefore, right. they need to support pro-wealth economic policies. How do you break through that wall of propaganda and get through to these people 
who clearly are pissed off about income inequality on some level, but refuse to support policies that will ameliorate that problem. I grew up in Oklahoma, and um, it was before NAFTA, it was a blue state. Yeah. But that was very much taken advantage of by think tanks. And what I don't think a lot of people understand is I think actually going out and campaigning and being there is going to be half the battle. Mm -hmm. Because people in rural areas don't see this as a fight between Republicans and Democrats. They literally see it as a fight good against evil. They really do believe they were killing babies. Oh, gosh, I shouldn't have brought that up. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's fine. That's absolutely a factor in all of this. That's the kind of propaganda I'm talking about. Exactly. Right. And, you know, I remember I was working in news way back in the day when the Fairness Doctrine happened. And, you know, back in the day, people didn't have cell phones. So they would say something in front of a young woman working in the industry. And I remember when the Republicans were oh, you know, we're going to get the churches behind us and that's going to make a difference. That's going to push us over the edge. And indeed it did. But I actually knew at one point they would have to pay for that. I I think what this comes down to is that the middle class voting habits are partly responsible for the disintegration of the middle class. I think that is happening. I think when when the Reagan revolution occurred and a lot of that came about as a consequence of many, many, a great many, and we don't even realize it now with our modern elections being so close, but so many middle-class Americans voted for Ronald Reagan twice (laughs) and not realizing that Reagan was bringing about the end of their lifestyles as they knew them. Uh, Does that make sense? Well, I mean, it did happen. People felt like if they voted for Reagan, they were wrapping themselves up in the fl- in the flag. And, yeah. you know, Reagan, of course, had been not a movie star, as people think. He had been a pitch man for a, yeah. an appliance company. So that's, you know, sales was his game. And he was selling, you know, something that wasn't true that people wanted to believe were true. That's my opinion of what happened during the Reagan administration. Yeah, right. It's it's just an incredible dynamic that we see uh, happening every time there's another election, people voting against their own economic best interests. Uh, along those lines, and I think one of the reasons why that happens is the press coverage of these kinds of elections, where sometimes the issue of income inequality gets buried underneath the horse race and coverage along those lines, who's up, who's down, uh, whatever the scandal of the week happens to be. Like right now, great example of that is, oh, Joe Biden's old. So don't worry about those Mm -hmm. actual issues that affect you uh, personally. Mm -hmm. Let's focus on the fact that Joe Biden's old, even though you know what? He was old three years ago and he's going to (laughs) be old three years from now. He's old. He's an old man. And we knew that going into 2020 when we nominated him and then when we elected him president. But that's, to me, a gigantic distraction from these existential problems that we face in this country. How do you overcome that? Well, I actually think how we are going to overcome it is Generation Z and millennials. Generation Z has actually, they're more savvy. They know when they're being messaged to. I don't even know, you know, I have a Gen Z and a millennial child myself. They don't watch network news. Yeah, right. They don't watch corporate news. And they're Friend, you know, their friend groups are very diverse and, you know, so many of them are living at home. It's, I wish I had the statistic for you. Maybe you know it, but it's a huge percentage of men under the age of 26 are living at home and you know that's not where they want to be. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So I think that, you know, when you get through college and you have a lot of debt and you can't find a job that will pay your debt. So you have to live with your parents. You're pretty clear where, you know 
where your votes need to go. So to what extent is the press complicit in the status of income inequality right now, the disintegration of the middle class? How is the press partly responsible for uh, this problem? Well, I think almost completely. They're, you know, they're run by corporations. I, um, I worked under the Fairness Doctrine, and we would have been fined $10,000 for each yeah. mention where just tell one side of the story. All somebody had to do was report us and we could be fined. And so what people don't realize about the fairness doctrine is that kept your bosses honest. Mm-hmm. You know, so your bot you now you can just push somebody to tell a story from some angle because it's their jobs on the line and they don't have anything to back them up. Do we also have a part to play in that though, in terms of uh consuming the news? Because I I feel like sometimes, as someone who's also worked in the news, I feel like sometimes there's a chicken and egg conundrum when it comes to that. If more people digested the news stories that do exist about income inequality and the the war against the middle class, then maybe that would get reported on more? Or is there some indication to say that, oh my God, well, even if we did that, they would still report on whatever they felt was sexy to uh, lead a headline with or whatever. In the chicken and egg scenario, <laughs> who's, who's, more to, who's more to blame in that, the consumers of news or the actual producers of news? Well, the actual producers are yeah. more to blame. But, but you know, information bias and that we choose, you know, I don't know about you, but I flip back and forth between publications on both sides of the aisle because, you need to, you know, you need to get balanced, but people have it for one thing who could educate people mm-hmm. to look at both sides of things. And, but the other thing that, you, you know, a mutual friend of ours, Debriana Mancini, yes. she, she recently, I was talking to her about this and she got me in touch with some people and I didn't realize that in the United States, we give about $15 per person for balanced news. You know, the government funds about $15 per person. But when I was talking to the people that she put me in touch with, that's compared to thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars per citizen in other countries. Interesting. And so, we don't, you know, we're not putting to, you know, together unbiased news and we don't think it's important. And the other thing that happens in a lot of countries is that at the very top of the news, they'll report some story that's gone wild, like you were talking about. You go on the Internet and there's one story that's on every timeline and if it's not true they will simply say there is a story being reported and then they go through what it is and they say we fact checked it it was not true and then they go on yeah yeah. and you know i think part of what's going on is we're not even just getting propaganda published we're we are saying you know bob said this and jillian said that as if that's the news yeah, the, the both sides notion. Like every issue yeah. has to have two equally correct sides. And then they have yeah. to get on television and scream at each other about each of their sides, even though there's one side in many of these cases that has no reasonable application to anything we're talking about. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And even sometimes both sides aren't really telling the truth, but it, they report it, as you said, as if it's equal. Right, right. Some some factual thing happened. I mean... A recent case is when Joe Biden was praying and every, you know, the news was that he was sleeping. Mm-hmm. And it, I promise you the sleeping news went a lot faster than the praying news. It just doesn't get corrected. And 
I mean, there are much better examples than that one. It's just such a black and white issue. There's Dalton White House, for instance. I don't, I'm a fan. I don't know if you are. A fan of who, did you say? Sheldon Whitehouse. Oh, right. Of course. Yes. So he lays out the truth. He gets facts and he gives you the figures and he works really hard on it. And sometimes the answer from the other side is that's not true. And but the reporter doesn't, you know, ask any questions or ask the other person to put out their case about what's true. They just say that what Sheldon Whitehouse said wasn't true. And that's reported as news. You know, that is absolutely happening. And I don't want to diminish the importance of how that is damaging the discourse. But mm-hmm. one of the things, going back to what I was saying a second ago about consumers of news, I feel like, for example, if you put this documentary, Americond, up against mm-hmm. a documentary about ancient aliens, right. <laughs> obviously, most viewers will go to the ancient aliens documentary. Mm-hmm. And overlook this documentary that covers things that directly affect their own lives and their families and their incomes and their households. And, And that is part of the disparity that we face, especially in a climate where everything is so democratized. Everything is so spread out. There are millions of options as far as not only news consumption, but entertainment and so on. So that's one of the things that uh, I think is creating an impediment toward resolving this issue. And I guess you can couple that in with the propaganda as well. Right. Well, we always say our next documentary is going to be about Bigfoot fighting aliens. (laughs) See? (laughs) And, you know, I swear to God, that documentary will probably do better box office or better business than Americon, and it shouldn't it shouldn't be that way. And yet, and yet it is. And you know what? It's this slow process of, and I hate to use this overused metaphor, but it's a slow process of boiling the frog. It starts Mm -hmm. with Reaganomics. And then suddenly you fast forward 40 years over this slow boiling. And here we are where unions are bad and they're anti-American and socialism is the biggest threat to the American way of life. And, Yeah, this is the whole thing. This is the whole game, isn't it? And there's a whole machine that people don't know about. So, for instance, the union busters are out there. And they're not just doing what you think they're doing. I mean, we know what their old tactics are. But if you go look up what are the benefits of a union, 99% of those websites are going to be put up by union busters. Mm -hmm. And they're going to tell you how it's less than a break-even deal and your dues are going to break you. And... And I know a lot of this because I did a lot of the research about the benefits of unions and I kept finding those accounts. And then, you know, for instance, in the case of Christian Smalls, he was shadowed by um, union busters. This is the Amazon story, right? Right. So the entire time we were shooting, because, you know, we, I did a lot of work with Black Lives Matters. And one of my friends sent me video of Christian very early on before he was had even appeared on the national news. Yeah. And he said, this guy, he's got something. And so I called Christian and I talked to him. And, um, you know, he was just an ordinary person when we first met him. But by the time we were filming with him, black SUVs with darkened windows <laughs> following wow. him. People were really digging into pat- his past. He was being catfished and... Uh, He's pretty savvy. I don't know. I've heard that he's a past chess champion, and I would believe it, you know, knowing him as well as I do. Yeah, yeah. I, he's a really charismatic guy. And just to, to give everyone a little bit of his backstory, he uh, wanted to organize uh, uh-huh. Am- his fellow Amazon workers. And in the process of doing that, Amazon fired him. 
Is that right. accurate? Right. Yeah, yeah. Two hours after they found out. Right. And that yeah. actually activated him, and he's now become a leader when it comes to generating support for unionization of Amazon workers, right? Right. And I don't think what people realize, because, you know, he having to deal with his press pretty often, people write under the comments, he's a greedy guy. How come anybody... How would anybody want to make, you know, deserve this much money for um, moving boxes? Well, first of all, the um, president of the Amazon labor union cannot make more than any other Amazon employee in the warehouse. Mm -hmm. So he makes equal to that. But second of all, Chris didn't walk out of Amazon because he didn't make enough money. He certainly wasn't making enough money. He walked out because he's a single father and they wouldn't give them PPE. Oh, God. And, you know, eventually one of his closest friends died of COVID, but he had other friends that were sleeping in their car so they wouldn't make their um, children go home and make their children sick. This is, of course, the very first of COVID that we didn't even know exactly how it was spreading or exactly how contagious it was. But the walkout was about something that was readily available in the warehouses, PPE. Yeah. So right, I'm sorry. He was wanting masks. He was wanting um testing which eventually happened but the woman who did the testing at his warehouse eventually died of COVID because they gave her no training right so they you know they were sending her sick people to test and she eventually died of COVID herself they didn't have any protocols he wanted protocols he wanted to know that you know that his he cares very much about the people that work under him he wanted to know that they could stand far away enough from each other and I you know I think he did want some other things in the package but mostly he wanted you know the safety precautions that were being nationally publicized as the only thing you could do to protect yourself from COVID. That's just striking that that mm -hmm. was not provided. How do they think that they could maintain a workforce without keeping them safe from COVID? I don't know. Another person who's one of his lieutenants told me that there was two, there were two or three very bad cases of COVID in his warehouse. And the, management told him he couldn't tell anybody even though they were working closely with the people with COVID. Jesus. So I, you know, I don't know. I think the people are, you know, the average and this may have changed, but the average person that works in um, an Amazon warehouse doesn't make it a year. And maybe they just think people are completely expendable. I don't, you know, I don't really know what their thinking is. Yeah. But the thing about it is, you know, ever since the days of Andrew Carnegie, these people like Jeff Bezos have been able to treat people terribly, irresponsibly, and then just put on a tuxedo, donate some money, and be a philanthropist, clean it all up. The hubris of that is striking because in the days mm -hmm. of Andrew Carnegie, there wasn't the internet. You couldn't, workers couldn't get the word out to other people and start to create some sort of large scale organization. Um, right. But now it seems like it's just foolish to think that, okay, well, they're going to keep it to themselves. They're not going to jump onto social media. They're not going to try to connect with other Amazon workers, for example, across the country. Uh, it's just not going to happen. I, I, I find that staggering that they have, that Amazon management and executives have no sense of the existence of the internet to be able to uh, use that to organize. It's just an amazing thing. It is. I mean, one thing that we learned is a lot of people had been preconditioned when we were in Clarksdale, Mississippi, which I'm 
been in many times to do Habitat for Humanity. When we were there, we interviewed some people that worked for a Boeing subsidiary or subcontractor. I'm not exactly sure which one. Mm -hmm. And so we asked them, how much would your life change if you made $15 an hour? Bob, they literally said to us, please don't mention that. Please don't get that started. This factory will leave and I won't have a job. God. They believed that that factory was just going to pull out of Clarksdale, Mississippi. I mean, they had, and that's, that's pre-programming. Yeah. Yeah. Just staggering. Right. Yeah. Right. So there's also this misapprehension among many middle working class Americans in, uh, in Trump country that capitalism means strength, that it's patriotic, uh, while income equality and a social safety net is somehow feminine and weak. Um, how do we flip that script? I'm suspecting it will change for the same reasons it changed after the Great Depression. When enough of your friends lose their houses over medical bills. When um, enough people get thrown, you know, Melissa, who's up in Northern California, she was just thrown out of her house and many people have been thrown out of their house, were thrown out of their houses or apartments during the pandemic because people decided they, you know, they were going to tear down buildings and build bigger buildings, which most people can't afford. But the point is, is that People, you know, just like the lines we've seen in the Depression, people standing in line to eat. I mean, my brother just did a um, rotation at Skid Row in Los Angeles, and the pictures are a lot bigger than when I worked in Los Angeles. And there's a point where I believe, I think there is a point where you can't ignore it anymore. It's in your face. It's your brother. It's your sister. It's your child. Right. There's this uh, perfect storm between, I think, uh, income inequality and the opioid crisis. A considerable portion of the homelessness issue that we face here mm-hmm. is uh, a, a consequence of both of those things combined, where right. you have uh, a lot of people who were uh, swept up into the opioid crisis, who right. then moved on to things like fentanyl and the horrendous P2P meth that's still out there. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence of that, once you're hooked on that, you need to stay closer to your dealer because, for example, fentanyl doesn't have a high that lasts as long as traditional heroin. So you're going to get the DTs a lot sooner, which means you have to be as close as possible to your dealer to replace your supply of fentanyl. And that keeps people trapped into these uh, uh, tent cities that are springing up in a, a, a lot of these major metropolitan regions. And so you combine all of those things and it's this perfect storm of poverty that is directly attributable to pro-wealth policy. Pro-wealth policies make it uh, easy for, for example, the Sackler family to, for a long time, get away with foisting opioids on people who didn't really necessarily need them or taking advantage of working class people in, for example, coal country. Um, And while you're in lots of pain, so here's your Oxycontin, take as much as you need. Here you go. And, and, and then therefore coal country begins to disintegrate even more than it already had been. So there are all these other factors at play, aren't there? There are. And that was all think tanks. Um, you know, people forget there was a day where your doctor wouldn't give you more than like four opioids after surgery. Right. They, they wouldn't, you know, and I, you know, had work, was working with several doctors at that time. And 
suddenly doctors that were so careful that were actually trying to avoid answering the phone on the weekends because that's when people ask for drugs on mm-hmm. the weekend. Yeah. And those, and those guys were writing prescriptions because the think tanks found a way to go through the drug companies and re-educate doctors, stuff that they knew wasn't true. Which one of the things that wasn't true was this is non-addictive. <laughs> This oxycontin we're giving you, don't worry about addiction. You're going to be fine. It's not going to be because of the slow release or whatever they were promising that turned out Mm -hmm. to not be true. And only now do we see the Sacklers uh, facing any sort of accountability. Right. Even though, I mean, even when they started to face accountability, it was still weak accountability. Given the wealth that they have accumulated, it was a slap on the wrist. And even now, accountability, even at this point, seems like a sketchy notion. It seems like, well, they could still wiggle out of this, which is so shocking and disturbing, isn't it? Well, I mean, Citizens United told us corporations were people, but apparently they're they're people that don't go to prison. (laughs) They're people that can have have a calculated risk. A good example in our area is that Mike Pence used to be the governor of the state that's about 10 miles from me. Mm-hmm. And um, he used to tell companies if they wanted to dump stuff in the water, they certainly could. They just had to pay the fine. In other words, there was a fee for yeah. dumping yeah. instead of a penalty for dumping. So yeah. if you consider that almost none of these fees have gone up, I mean, I know that there's some fighting now at the FEC to get Fox's license taken away, mm-hmm. but do, that would be maybe the only real consequence I could think of now. It's cost of doing business, don't you think? Absolutely, for sure. Okay, short break. Back with more Jillian Hurley right after these words. You can't always get a clean you can feel good about inside and out unless you're using Bubble Genius Bath and Body Products. See, Bubble Genius is a woman-owned small business proudly creating our vegan-friendly products in America and supporting other U.S. businesses by buying our ingredients and supplies from them as often as possible. Plus, you'll be hard-pressed to find packaging as recyclable as ours. Visit BubbleGenius.com and check out our cause-related items, too, like our global warming soap and a lot more. We donate our proceeds for those items to worthy causes, like organizations combating climate change and mountaintop removal mining. Good stuff like that. We also send our products to the troops overseas through our Buy a Soldier a Shower campaign. Because the least we can do is keep them smiling and smelling great, right? So visit BubbleGenius.com and feel good and clean. Bubble Genius, doing our part to make the world a better place, one bathtub at a time. That's BubbleGenius.com. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Bob Seska! All-time favorites all day long! Uh, 
Um, there's this other, and, and let me know if I'm off base with this, because I wanted to cover the impact of NAFTA a little bit and free trade specifically. <laughs> there's this frustrating dynamic, Jillian, where a lot of middle class or working class Americans are placated by the availability of relatively cheap disposable goods due mm-hmm. in large part to slave labor overseas. In other words, cheap goods manifested this illusion that obscured the existence of stagnant wages. We could buy more on the same income because of the existence of those cheap goods. It's like a bad card trick. You you can't keep up on the same income year in and year out. But there's this chain of dollar stores. So you can at least feel like you have buying power Mm -hmm. still. And in the end, it, it not only kills the middle class here, but subjugates workers overseas as well. Um, and so whenever I see a dollar store or one of those Walmart spending sprees on Black Friday, I think about this dynamic. Cheap overseas right. labor means cheaper goods, which means more wealth consolidated at the top. And all we get is dollar store crap. Well, it is true. And, it's, and, it, and the other truth is, is that we are funding Walmart. We were going to do a segment on how Walmart is, you know, funded at all levels by governments and grants. Are you aware of that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of these big box stores get all kinds of uh, zoning permits and, and uh, you know, tax-free status, depending on where they're right. set up. Yeah. Right. But the reason we couldn't do the segment is no matter, no matter it was a, it was a bottomless pool. We couldn't ever find all of it. It was so much that we couldn't yeah. find all of it. And then when you add on to that, that Walmart employees are taught how to get on Medicaid because they're not being, they're, they're not getting health insurance. <laughs> So, I, you know, part of it, is, you know, I guess, part of the solution is to make these, some of these companies pay their full fare. Yeah. The other thing that Walmart did is they are the company that broke the trucking business. You know, my family, we were poor. I just didn't know it when I was little. Yeah. But um, my dad became a truck driver. We're, we're a farm family. He became a truck driver. And my life changed overnight. Visits to the dentist, you know, being able to go to activities, actually probably somewhat why I've always been an activist because unions are um, so politically active. But Walmart's the one that intentionally busted all the laws about what you had to do and accomplish to become a truck driver. And so the average American truck driver now makes less than my dad made in the 80s. But in dollars, not but, in percentage, in dollars. So they, you know, Walmart and the cheap goods, as you say, have broken down the whole system. Well, then there's this other dynamic that you add on top of it, which is that cheap goods break down more quickly, which means you have to buy more of those cheap goods to replace the shitty cheap good that you just purchased. You know what I mean? So right. you, you can buy a, a television for a fraction of the cost that you were charged to buy a television 20, 30 years ago. Uh, But the TV will break after a couple of years and you'll have to buy another one, which completely negates the idea of buying an inexpensive television during a Black Friday sale. You know what I mean? And so it's you're kind of screwed coming and going. Right. You're not getting the income, but you're also not getting quality goods for the cheap prices that there's a a lack of there's an illusion that you face of, of buying power that doesn't really exist. My daughter is um, now she's in she's a um, leader in the ethical investing in the industry. But when she was in school, she used to when when she would see the phenomenon you're talking about, she'd say, "If we only knew the price of a cheap pool." 
<laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. To buy that cheap pool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, that's that's precisely uh, what I'm speaking of. It's such a great way to put it. Um, so job security, you know, using other people badly. I mean, it's just, it's a big circular. Yeah. Uh, you, know, I mean, you described it perfectly. It's, it's How do you fix that? I don't know. But I guess part of it is you make them pay at least their fair part. There's this amazing thing that goes on, and, and speaking of your daughter reminded me of this, that uh, social media has a part to play in all of this, and maybe even a bigger part than the traditional press, because there's this worship of wealth that's happening, worship mm-hmm. of status and clout mm-hmm. that occurs as a consequence of social media, specifically places like uh, Instagram, for example, right. where you have a lot of influencers disguising themselves as being wealthier than they really are, where they're like sure. the the prop interiors of uh, a private jet that right. make it seem like, okay, well, this influencer is on a private, on their own private jet. Isn't that amazing? That's something I want to aspire to be. And it's, it's an illusion. It's fake. It's not real. And yet um, it creates this, this attraction to affluence that is in large part due to, the lack of a middle class or the disintegration of a middle class is is becoming more and more difficult to achieve. And so right. therefore it's this unattainable goal that creates frustration that leads to things like alcoholism and drug addiction or suicide, which you see a lot of among children who <laughs> see these icons, these influencers with impossibly good looks generated by filters or impossibly mm-hmm. wealthy lifestyles. Most of that is made up, uh, <laughs> but it, it, it's a thing that exists and, and causes more of this economic anxiety that we hear a lot about. Oh, it's, it's absolutely true. And, you know, having been in the news and you having been in the news, I, I'm sure that sometimes you could look at them and go that they are not where they say they are. That is yeah. not true. But, you know, I, I don't know how you fight all of that. I, mean, I know there's now some people in the de-influencing business that show how what the person said wasn't true. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I love that. I love the existence yeah. of that because yeah. demystifying, I think, some of this influencer culture on social media is a necessary part of this equation. I think that's probably true. But I will say the younger adults know is most of it's BS. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think teens do, but the younger ones, those are some of them of their friends. They know their friends aren't going to Paris over the weekend, but, um, but I do love that de-influencing is just starting to catch on. I don't know if you've seen any of it. Uh, Bits and pieces. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So they're starting to call it out. You know, people are telling you this is wonderful, but they didn't tell you that they were sponsored this is how much money they got for it, you know, and then, so that's just starting and it's a movement I really like. I, it's, this is difficult for me to talk to. I'm so skeptical about anything. Oh yeah, it should be. Yeah. Because you know what, because there's this whole economy of the internet where it seems like we're all paying each other to entertain each other. And that leads me to what's happening in Hollywood right now. Has the uh, Writers Guild strike and the Screen Actors Guild strikes resonated to other workers beyond the entertainment industry? Is this starting to have an effect? Talk about influencing. Is this starting to have an effect uh, with other labor organizations and also the formation of new unions as a consequence of the visibility of these strikes in Hollywood? 
I think so. And I think that's a good question. And you know, Bob, I think when that changed was, you know, what, what did you hear at first? These people make a lot of money. What do they have to complain about? Yeah. Well, when they started showing their checks on camera, what they were making and the and, you know, young child actors didn't get any residuals. If you were under 18, when you worked in the business, some of the people that carried some of the heaviest shows in America don't get a dime now. And I think, um, I think Debriana was telling me she got a 27 cent check. I might be wrong. Oh my God. <laughs> I might be wrong about that. It might have been a different friend. So I do, but I do think when they, you know, started explaining on their own accounts that, the, you know, it's not regular work. That's why these things are important. And um, that people were trying to use their images forever and ever through AI. Yeah. I think yeah. people did start to understand and, you know, we think we know these people, so I think we're more likely to trust them to believe that. Yeah, I think one of the revelations from these two strikes is that more and more people are realizing that the vast majority of those unions are made up of middle-class Americans, just like we see uh, across the country in other vocations. And so there's a, re a relatability that has emerged, I think, out of this. Is that something that you've observed as well? It is something I observe, but I also would say that the other thing that's changed is we have different kinds of union leaders. Now, you know, we have Chris Smalls, and he's very relatable. He's, yeah. he's young, and um, we have Mary Kay Henry at SEIU. I don't know. Are you aware of that union? The, oh, yeah, in yeah. New York, okay. In New York City, they're a cleaners union, and we went on the protest with them right before they were going to strike. And it's a different kind of union. For instance, they they don't just do what we think of them doing. They help provide English lessons. You can, if you're in the cleaners union, you can get an HVAC training mm -hmm. to make a better income. They help, will help bring your family over, help you get full citizenship. They even have two emergency dentists in their building because so many people that just joined a union haven't had any health care in a long, long time. Wow. And so Mary Kay Henry has been like an amazing change of pace. And then Sean O'Brien at Teamsters is a very different guy. Now he kind of sounds like the old union leaders, but he's not. Yeah. And what we don't know about Sean and the newer Teamster leaders is that they're not just taking care of their drivers or Teamsters. They, the Disney characters at Disney that wear the costumes, they're Teamsters too. And so when SEIU was getting ready to strike, and it was, I wish I could transport you there, Bob. It was <laughs> surreal. These wonderful, hardworking people were marching through the streets. We're filming them, and we're filming them in the shadows of these giant skyscrapers they claim, right? Yeah. You know, just wealth and abundance and doormen. And um, so they were getting ready to strike. And the Teamsters show up at the event and they announce that they will not be picking up the trash at the buildings that don't agree to the agreement. Wow. See, that's playing that's some serious leverage right there. Yeah. Right. And that's something else I'm starting to see that I've never seen before is unions coming in and saying, well, if you think you can dismiss these people, you can't dismiss if another union joins. So that's a whole different way of playing the game than I've ever seen before. And, um, I was trying to think there's another, but there's, you know, two or three leaders, the president of the um, airline attendance union. She's also a whole different ball game. And, and they seem to wait for, you know, just the right time. I don't know if you saw that another UPS driver died of a um, heat stroke a couple yes, of days. Ago. 
I saw yes. that. Yeah, yeah. But that's been happening for a really long time. And every other trucking company has air conditioning in their trucks. So as you can imagine, that was the main, as you know, it's gotten hotter and hotter. That was one of the main drivers behind this movement this time. Yeah. The UPS decided in their wisdom that it was less expensive to not put air conditioners in than it was. I mean, the risks they took, the anger they took, you know, people put their thermometers up and show that it's 118 degrees in their back of their trucks. And just the, I don't think that UPS, and you know, I've spoken and spent some time with a lot of UPS drivers. I don't think they would have moved so quickly, except yeah. that they realized that their lives were being disregarded. There's such a hubris in that, this notion that, um, oh, yeah, you know what? It'll cost us more to put AC in our UPS trucks than it will to pay out settlements to workers who die of heat exhaustion on the job. <laughs> this seems so cynical, uh, remarkably right. cynical to me. Right. And we just came full circle, right? It's, yeah. It becomes a cost. It's just a cost. And if the cost isn't high and if Citizens United doesn't mean you go to jail. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know? We're going to have to look at some of those numbers and some of those things that um, it's it's got to hurt. Your penalty has to hurt mm -hmm. to do, for corporations to do right. You know, and as you saw in the movie, we discussed how that came to be with Friedman. The community I live in is a you know, is a community that was devastated by NAFTA, yeah. and I will tell you that those people tried to get a seat at the table and they couldn't. Mm -hmm. And you know, so. It didn't just hurt the factories; it hurt all the small businesses. It, it just it devastated our community. But back in the day, which is that long ago, the day isn't that long ago. Everybody in my community could afford a house. Yeah. Even the waitress that was at the diner where all the union workers ate lunch. That's incredible to me because, you know, we hear a lot from Republicans about the utopia of the 1950s. Making America Great Again is in large part about that nostalgia for 1950s America, when in uh -huh. fact a lot of 1950s America was directly attributable to the New Deal coalition and the consequences of that legislative series of success stories. And so we benefited greatly in the 1950s at least white America did from right. those policies and th the same policies, which the Republican party contradictorily wants to eliminate that they're actively going to war against every time there's another election. So th there's that, just that, that basic contradiction that exists within that kind of policymaking, the people who tend to vote for those people playing that game. I, I don't understand how they can square those things in their heads. You mean the voter? Yeah, exactly. Or anyone, for that matter. Observers looking in to say, okay, this doesn't make any sense. They want to go back to the 1950s. Well, the 1950s, that was, oh my God, the GI Bill alone was a, a huge boom for uh, workers at the time. Yeah, white workers. It yeah. was huge. Right. Well, right. And yeah, white workers. I want to make sure I emphasize, <laughs> yeah, whiteness as being part of the equation there. Right. And, and I think maybe that's what they're longing for, Bob. <laughs> Yeah, the whiteness without the policies that created the middle class, the white middle class at that point in time, right? I mean, maybe that's part of what we're not seeing in yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. long game is, a, you know, a position that's just given to you because you exist. I, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, going back to hubris, Jillian, I want to mention one last thing about the writer strike or the actor strike. 
it looks like the studios and the AMPTP have lost more money due to the strikes than they would have if they had given the writers and the actors everything they wanted. Right. Why? <laughs> Why do they insist on doing this? Knowing, I mean, they, I'm sure they had projections in hand shortly after the strikes were approved. How much money are we going to lose as a consequence for this uh, as mm-hmm. time goes on? But it just seems like a gigantic dick move to me, making this not about the bottom line, but about a PR victory, you know, because it's clearly not about the money, because if it was about the money, they would have settled the strike at the beginning and given the writers and actors what they wanted. Instead, they're prolonging it and hoping for what? I don't understand what their end game is. Well, their end game, apparently, from things that have leaked is to break people, to have people lose their houses and be so scared that they take what they're being offered. And I think part of it's AI too, but I think actually, I wonder if they realize, you know, the studio business keeps creating themselves and then collapsing and creating themselves and collapsing even since the old studio days. Yeah. I wonder if these um, streaming companies realize they already have a deficit of material from the pandemic, correct? Yeah, they didn't have anything to put on their streaming channels. And so that was one of the reasons why uh, HBO Max picked up the Snyder Cut of Justice League to get some sort of content onto that brand new streaming platform. And now they're facing the same problem once again, but for a different reason. Maybe we should have released their, our movie then. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I think they're facing that again. And this has actually been the history of studios. And right. now they collapse. Yeah, yeah. They strong arm people. They don't work, worry about getting quality material out. You can certainly see the HBO is really hurting from that right now. Yeah, exactly. But, and, and that's a great example because they're paying twice as much for something that could have cost half as much. You know, it just seems bizarre to me. Well, it seems like it's a zero-sum game. And, of course, the guys at the top are going to get paid the same anyway. That's true. And that's what's always so shocking, right? Some guy, like, you know, these guys that got... You went back to your fentanyl and opioid example. Mm-hmm. The guys at the very top didn't get screwed. Yeah. They got huge payouts. The guys that made these decisions got it paid for them. But you know, all the people that own stock in their companies paid for it, all their employees paid for it. Mm-hmm. And the other, you know, the other you know, people forget that opioid drug companies make other drugs. Some of those other drugs are starting to collapse under that too. Yeah. But if the people at the top make the decisions again, are not going to have any consequences, you know, and, you know, and totally embrace the Friedman doctrine. I don't know what you do. Yeah. Neither do I. I it's, it's one of those things where it feels like documentaries like American are more and more necessary to generate awareness, if nothing else, an idea of, yeah, hey, you know what, you're doing this wrong, whether it's executives, whether it's uh, pro-wealth policies, whether it's Republicans, whether it's the people who are being conned in Trump country to supporting policies that are contrary to uh, their economic success. So uh, there are lots of things to overcome, and I'm so glad this documentary is out there. Where, where okay. and when can uh, people watch American? And they can watch it on all the regular steam- streaming services, and ironically, one of them is Amazon Prime. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so Amazon <laughs> is allowing this. Um, I mean, I don't. we've had some complications because of that. We don't know exactly. Um, I won't go into it, but there's been some things that have happened. So they may just think they're not happy about it, but I think maybe they learned their lesson from Chris. I hope so. We would, you know, there's a part of us we're thinking, you know, maybe if they really turn on us, look at publicity and people will watch the movie. 
But so we're on Amazon, we're on Voodoo, we're on Google Play, we're on Apple TV. We're all almost you can you know purchase around almost all those services. We also do something that we really enjoy doing, and we actually go out to groups. So we went out to AFL CIO in Seattle to their state conference and ended up having a standing room only audience. And you know, of course, that was lots of fun. But so we, you know, we do want to do more of that. We want to go out and it's it's a really great opportunity to have discussion with people. And you can't believe who's unionizing. Um, I was just contacted by somebody recently that their ethics group unionized. And, I, and mm-hmm. I'm assuming from this conversation I had is that this was a group of people that were the ethics person, a bunch of different companies, and they unionized. So, you know, I did. Have you talked to Chris recently? How's he doing? We are have become very close during this time. And I think I was officially made an auntie. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. That's an honor. I'm in his business a little bit, but um, <laughs> Chris is doing great. And Chris like gets that it's the long game and at, he's not, you know, he's a really young guy to get that. I, I mean, I, I think you'll probably agree. He like, he gets that they're going to keep throwing stuff at him and he's going to have to get, keep going through process. And I don't know if you know this, but Union busters file stuff all the time that they know can't make it. It just pro, you know prolongs the service. And he's yeah. just, maybe that's the chess player in him and he gets that and he's doing great. And he is the wonderful father to his kids that you see in that movie and which is what made him walk out. Christina, the truck driver, you know, who I love, she's still struggling. Hmm. You know, it's, it's really hard out there. She owns her truck and childcare is hard and, you know, they're in a much smaller housing, but Christina's kind of indomitable. She's, you don't think you can break Christina. <laughs> and then Anna is happier than she's ever been. You know, she, Anna's the woman that was in the apartment building where they were doing the illegal evictions. Right, right. And a whole other tragedy we didn't even talk about today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've never seen anything like it. And I will just quickly share with you that the only reason Anna didn't get thrown out is because she was being filmed. Because there were people who filed the same paperwork. Wow. That they were illegally out of the building. I'm trying to think who else. I did see Melissa recently. She's a family from North Carolina. They're doing well. Um, Ian, the plumber, he's living his best life. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. That's, that's so nice to hear. Um, he is. That was good for us emotionally. We've seen, yeah. you know, you, you didn't even see the worst stuff we saw because it was so unbelievable. We thought people would relate to it. For instance, an apartment building where people were living, but the water and electricity had been turned off illegally, but they couldn't afford to go anywhere else. So they're taking water out of the pool to flush and they're running electric lines from other apartments. So we saw that kind of stuff, but people don't really believe. Do you understand what I'm saying? They don't believe yeah. that that's happening and they don't believe well, why would they stay? Because <laughs> they don't have a new first, last, and security deposit. That's why. Well, I, I imagine there's a benefit to simply being heard. There's like a moral <laughs> victory in having a voice in this right. documentary film, which is being seen by God knows how many people. Uh, <laughs> that's empowering, and that's therefore important, I think. And if more of this were to go on, I think uh, we may be better off. If more of these stories got out through 
whether it's uh, further documentaries, sequels to this one, or just you know having uh, access to a social media platform would be immensely beneficial to this entire issue, wouldn't it? It would. And you know what? You're right. They're all very proud of participating. Yeah. You always worry, you know, because you care about these people. And you worry how they will they feel about their portrayal. Yeah. Being portrayed, but they're all very proud of it. I always know, I mean, I'm not the only one that was casting, mm -hmm. but I always know, because I always take it really slow with people. I always know they're going to do it when they say this to me. I want people to see how we're being treated. Congratulations on an incredible documentary. I wish you and the film itself uh, all the success. And, uh, no, and certainly, I hope that it has the impact that, uh, that it should have. No, oh, thank you. It was a real team effort. And yeah. so... We're all just, you know, we just, all we really want in the world is for people to see it. All right. Well, it was great talking to you, Jillian. We we'll definitely you have know. to have you back sometime for an update. I would love it. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Voices of a new